Hi, I'm Simon Russell, founder of Behavioural Finance Australia. I'm here with Peter Bell, co-founder of Belmont Securities, a boutique Australian portfolio manager and broker. Peter and I share an interest in behavioural finance, the impacts of psychological forces on investors and on markets. Welcome, Peter. Thanks very much, Simon. Peter and I have actually done a few things in the past together. Um, I quoted Peter a couple of times in my first book on behavioural finance, um, Applying Behavioural Finance in Australia. The reason there was that Belmont provided some practical examples of how to apply some of the principles I was discussing in the book. Uh, We've also jointly presented a number of seminars and workshops on behavioural finance and related investment issues. But today we're going to talk uh, briefly about one particular element of behavioural finance and that is salience. How some risks can be more salient than others and what that means for investors and for markets. So Peter, would you like to kick us off by telling us what you think of when you speak about salience? Okay, Simon. So to me, salience is really a term that describes how vivid or real or easy to imagine a particular element of of risk is. So uh, if we look at the risks that can uh, occur both in in everyday life and also in the markets, there are some that are really easy to bring to mind and and, uh, there are others which are effectively the, the, the black swan type events that uh, there, there are risks that we don't even see coming, and what happens is that you know certain of those events that are really easy to uh, to imagine, uh, the vivid, the real risks tend to be often overweighted in terms of the likelihood that they're they're going to occur. Yeah, look, I completely agree. It's one of the things I spoke a bit about in the book because it has or can have a significant effect on markets and investments, which is what we're going to talk about today. Uh, but also it's relevant for uh, the way advisors engage with and advise their clients. And a couple of the examples we talk about there, which I'm sure you're going to agree with, uh, is one of them is the, the chance that you're eaten by a shark. Uh, now, of course, you need to be swimming in the ocean for that to happen at all, but the risks are even then of being eaten by a shark, uh, the, or the perceived risks, obviously, I mean, given how vivid, imaginal, and emotional as well, the risk of actually being eaten by a shark seems compared with actually is, of course, you're much more likely to get hit by a car on the way to the beach than being uh, eaten by a shark. And, and can I can I also point out that I'm sure people's concerns about being eaten by a shark would have been far greater after having just watched Jaws than beforehand as well. So, you know, even though being eaten by a shark might be a more salient risk generally, when you have that uh, additional impetus of a, a very vivid uh, description or visualisation of that risk, uh, it becomes even more real in your mind. Yeah, and a recent memory, as, yeah, as you say. Exactly. Um, so in the context of client engagement, these these things can be good. You need to draw attention to things. You need to understand clients' risk profiles, uh, of course, and, and that's an aspect that we go into in some detail in the book. But today we're going to focus on the investment aspects of salience, and particularly around narratives. Um, now, narrative is a good way of raising salience, isn't it? If there's a storyline that goes with it, then things become more easy to imagine things playing out in the context of that, that storyline. And narrative is a great way to engage with clients. But perhaps you'd like to talk to us a bit about how narratives play out in an investment context. What, what do you think about when you're talking about narratives? Sure. Well, uh, look, I might, I'll, I'll take it back a little step further and uh, it'll actually get onto that narrative part. So for us, when we're investing, we're, we're an investor who, uh, we're effectively a value investor. Now, when I say value investor, we're not just after things that are cheap, we're after good companies that are currently undervalued by the market. Now, uh, when we're buying any particular security, we're buying from someone who's selling. So we think it's really important to understand the counter view 
to our own. Because if we're looking to buy something, obviously we have a positive view of that business over, um, over the long term. But the person who's selling us obviously has the exact opposite viewpoint. So we're always looking to understand the viewpoint of the person who's selling to us. And what we tend to find is that when the viewpoint of the person selling to us is informed by a particularly salient risk, one where they've had uh, a lot of talk about that risk. Uh, right at the moment, we might be talking about the coronavirus. Uh, that's a particularly salient risk for people at the moment because it's in the media. It's, it's catastrophic in, in its impact on people's lives. Uh, but it's also quite possible that can, be, that can be exaggerated in its impact on the financial performance of a business. Um, and there are many, many examples of, of that. So um, the narrative around that risk is a really important factor in determining how salient it is for investors. Yeah, and this, this I think is a fantastic example of what I've referred to as second order thinking. So first order is thinking about, say, a company. Second order then is thinking a bit in, in what you've described. I need to think about how others are thinking about that company. Why is my seller, the other person, the person on the other side of this transaction, thinking differently about this um, this company mm -hmm. than I am? And the narratives, perhaps you can talk a bit more about the sure. narratives um, aspect of that. Yeah, well, uh, look, I think probably the best way to explain the narratives aspect of that is, uh, is to give some examples. And uh, probably the best example in the last few years has been the Amazon effect. So we, uh, we saw Amazon come into the market a couple of years ago in Australia. And uh, as Amazon arrived, the PR machine really started to, 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 to work its magic. And the number of stories you saw about Amazon and its impact and its amazing growth that it's achieved over the last 20 years was just enormous. And many of those stories focused on how, uh, how Amazon had single-handedly decimated the retail industry in the US. Now, of course, that's an over-exaggeration, once again, um, but that was a really powerful narrative that was being broadcast on TV, on radio, uh, in the newspapers, in all the financial press. And so what happened around that time is that Australian investors seemed to make the assumption that exactly the same thing was going to happen in Australia. And that is that as Amazon arrived in Australia, all Australian retail businesses were going to go out of business. And so what we had was a situation where we had a particularly salient risk that investors, in my opinion, were overweighting the likelihood of that risk occurring and the impact that that risk would have on other businesses. As a result, we had many very high quality retail businesses with quality management uh, still growing their earnings that were available on PEs of, of under 10. Now, we're generally in a reasonably expensive market at the moment, so you don't get too many opportunities to buy good quality companies on PEs of under 10. Uh, but that was a situation where for, for literally a couple of years you had that opportunity to buy some really exceptionally high quality retail businesses for very, very attractive prices because that narrative about Amazon coming in and destroying all retail businesses was, was so pervasive. And to some extent, it's still, it's still happening today. Yeah, um, there's many things I like about that story. One, I think, is um, the forecasting aspects that are embedded in it as well. So implicitly, we've made a forecast here that says Amazon's coming in, Amazon takes market share, retailers go bankrupt, shares go down. There's, there's a bunch of aspects of that 
forecast. Now, uh, for, for anyone who's familiar with the forecasting research literature, uh, forecasting, what do they say? Forecasting tends to be difficult, particularly about the future. Um, but in this case, when you're forecasting a relatively extreme outcome, uh, and particularly as we forecast over longer periods of time, the chances that those things just uh, turn out to be the way that we expect uh, reduces uh, rapidly, but particularly as you get further and further away from uh, the, from the current day. And I actually did write an article some time back about, um, I think it was called Why Bill Gates is Probably Wrong, um, which was... Uh, a bold, a bold, uh, a bold title. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not sure he was quaking in his boots, to be honest. But, <laughs> but it, was, it was really aimed at the quote that is so often repeated, and I, I'm not actually sure whether he provided this quote or whether he fully believes it or whether it was an off-the-cuff remark that's it's, it's sort of gone viral. But it was words to the effect that uh, we tend to overestimate change in, the, in two years but underestimate change in ten, for example. And just unfortunately, that doesn't align with the research, which basically says, well, we tend to be wrong in two years and wronger in ten. It's not like there's some point at which we sort of go from being under to over, uh, uh, overestimating things. It's just that we happen to forget the stuff that we thought was going to happen and focus on the stuff uh, that we got that uh, that we underestimated. Um, so I think the Amazon is an example of that. Probably we're going to get our forecasts wrong. If those forecasts are for massive change, they're probably going to be wrong. Yep. And and look, that's not at all to downplay the uh, the quality of Amazon's business or uh, the likelihood that it's going to be a very successful operator in the Australian market. I think it's absolutely going to be the case. But I think taking it to that next step where you're saying that that's going to mean that all, all retail businesses are going to suffer is is very very naive. You know, good businesses are run run by good management, and we have never in the last uh, hundred years had an environment where uh, the market is not changing and good businesses adapt to changes in the market. And Amazon is another change in the market. Uh, The proliferation of online retail is another change in the market. And what you see is that good management teams are reacting to that and they're actually making changes to their own business model as well. Yeah, and so using this approach, looking for salience, how's it been going for you? It's been uh, going very well. So we've we've had a few really good years. So uh, we had our our Australian equities portfolio that we we're running for uh, financial advisors. It was the second best performing uh, large cap long only Australian equities portfolio in the country uh, in the last year, which is uh, which is very exciting. Uh, and we're I think ninth out of about five hundred uh, comparable funds over over the two years. So. Been, uh, it's been all working, working pretty well Fantastic. for us. Fantastic. Sounds, sounds good. Now, I'm sure we could talk all day about this topic, and I'm sure you could talk all day about your um, stellar performance <laughs> returns, <laughs> but we'd better wrap it up. Um, now, if listeners like it to get in touch with you and to find out more about Belmont's approach, what's the best way? Uh, just go onto our website, www.belmontsecurities, and that's B-E-L-L-M-O-N-T securities.com.au, and click on the advisors link at the top of the page. Fantastic. And if you'd like to read more about the power of salience and attention, uh, I could also recommend via Amazon if you wish. Uh, my new book, Behavioral Finance, A Guide for Financial Advisors. It's on Amazon, but also other retailers like Book Depository. Um, it's primarily designed for financial advisors, but also has a number of strategies that are relevant for super funds and other investors. Uh, or you can get in touch with me via my website, behavioralfinanceaustralia.com.au, where you can see some details of some of the workshops I run. Uh, including one on dealing with noise and information overload, which sort of relates to some of the salience and narrative aspects we've talked about today. On that note, thank you very much, Peter. Thanks very much, Simon.